Before we get going, just a quick reminder that you can download the High Performance app for free. Download the app, use your exclusive code HPAPP, that's HPAPP for access, where you can hear Damien talk exclusively about combating perfectionist thinking with the Shakespeare principle. Just download the High Performance app and use the code HPAPP. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes, and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged, and to grow. Before we get going, please can you do me one favour, just hit the subscribe button. If you can subscribe to our shows here on your podcast provider or on YouTube, it allows us to grow high performance, to attract even more incredible guests, to have even more impact. Right, today is a special episode. Here's what's coming up. The job of the coach is to take something that's complex and complicated and make it simple. Then I come up with the idea of, okay, well, let's be the greatest sports team in the history of the game. And I, I don't even know if some people thought we could achieve it. And I don't know if we did or we didn't achieve it. It doesn't matter. What, what mattered was we had a whole group of people collectively owning that idea, trying to achieve it. The hardest thing to do at World Cups, that's why they're so hard to win, is go back to back to back. You've got to have three great performances to win it. For a long time, the All Blacks didn't want to admit to ourselves that we were chokers at World Cups. We won two World Cups because of the fact that they allowed us to have another go. And we took the learnings and, you know, Bob's your uncle, got the job done. You know, there's one thing we love here on High Performance, and that's showing you a side to elite sports people, whether that's the athletes, the coaches, the executives or the leaders, that you just don't see or hear anywhere else. And today is special. Recorded ahead of a game at Twickenham Stadium, the home of England rugby, we were joined by the legendary All Blacks coach, Steve Hansen. He's the first ever coach to lead the All Blacks to a successful defence of the Rugby World Cup. But this conversation actually is about so much more than rugby. It's about life. He is one of rugby's greatest leaders. He has led the most famous team in the sport of rugby. But Steve rarely gives interviews like this. He rarely opens up in this kind of way. This interview is honest, it's emotional, it's entertaining, and it's enlightening. So on the eve of the Rugby World Cup, let's hear from a coach who has won it as we welcome Steve Hansen to High Performance. 
Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure and looking forward to it. Uh, let's start then with the, the question that I guess defines the name of this podcast. What is your version of high performance? It's a number of things really, but if, you, if you're looking at skill, it's, it's being able to perform the skill at the highest level under the most pressure and keep your, your mental fortitude in the now as opposed to in the past or being distracted by what's going on around you. And, um, you know, off-field it's about making sure that you're doing the little things that make you better, you know. So we often, I think, understand the on-field stuff, but we struggle a little bit with the off-field, particularly young athletes when they start, and that's where we have to educate them a bit. And where did your own personal desire to find high performance to improve yourself and those around you begin? Uh, I'm not sure, really. I think my father was uh, a coach well before his time. Uh, we talked a lot about rugby and sports and um, reasonably competitive human beings. So, um, How competitive? No, nah, very. <laughs> probably too competitive because my pride gets in the way, or used to, probably still does a bit. Um, however, you know, I think when you start doing things and you don't do them as well as you'd like to do, then you find ways to get better. And if you want to win things and you don't win them, you find ways to get better. And it, it grows within you and, um, you know, it's like something's just tapping away in the back of your head all the time, demanding that you you got to front up. And I was lucky in my early coaching career I... I came straight out of playing and went straight to coaching and I had a, uh, a coach who'd been a teacher, uh, a coach, you know, for all his life and he taught me something that stayed with me forever. You know, after the game and you haven't won or haven't played as well, it's not about what the guys haven't done, it's what, what could you do better during the week to help them be better. And he said, that's the question we've got to ask ourselves. So that stuck with me and... And I think that's been wonderful help. So I'm the son of a coach as well. My dad was a boxing coach, Steve. And um, I think sometimes in this modern day and age, we often overcomplicate a lot of the messages. And I think common sense is common practice and it goes right the way uh, back. Don't well, get me going on common sense. <laughs> Go on. Well, it shouldn't be called common sense because it's not that common. Um, the job of the coach is to take something that's complex and complicated and make it simple. The simpler you can make it, the easier it is for you know your athlete to be able to go and do it. If you've got athletes who've got to think about what they're doing, then it doesn't matter what sport it is, they're going to be slow at it because they're too busy thinking rather than doing. I always say, like, you drive your car, you don't think about how you drive it, you just drive it until someone either cuts you off or you just about have an accident, and the next 15 minutes, you know, you're the sweat coming off the brow because you're thinking that much. But you're not going very fast, and and it's the same. Like in our sport, continually we overcoach them, we overcomplicate things that should just be simple messages. So it sounds simple to say, make it simple. Mm. How did you do it? <laughs> Good question. Well, I think over time, come to understand uh, for the game I wanted to play, and the players I had to play it, I, I wanted to find right what's critical. And uh, you can't have too many. There's a lot of important many things, but what's really, really critical, if you know we do those really good, we'll give ourselves a chance to win. So identifying those, and then for each one of those five things, 
you find two or three things that are really critical for them to be successful. What were the five? Uh, for me, uh, set piece, breakdown, tackle, catch and pass, and then position-specific skills like kicking for fullbacks and stuff like that. So. so where among making the game of rugby more simple comes the culture, the the messaging to the players, getting to their heart, not their head? How do you make all of that simple? Because the people that listen to this podcast are constantly looking for ways in their own lives to, to do that. Culture is probably the most overused word in the in the planet, I think, because is there a culture or is it just how you live? And and so once you establish how you want to live and then you go about living it from the top down rather than the bottom up, um, things are either going to be great or they're going to be dog shit because there's only two types of way to live. It's either right or wrong. So it's a matter of establishing what's not negotiable, what is negotiable, and then um, getting aligned on it. So from my point of view, it was making sure the other coaches, the management were aligned. Then we'd take it to our leaders, get them aligned and give everybody the opportunity to disagree and robustly discuss it. And eventually someone may still be disagreeing, but they have to commit to it because the majority wins. Then you take it to the rest of the group and give them the same opportunity. So we all own it. It's not just Steve's idea, it's everybody's idea, right down to the guy that's just arrived first time in the All Blacks. And his opinion's just as valuable as everybody else's. So give them the opportunity to, as I say, robustly disagree or agree. At some point, boys, okay, well, we've still got a 23 split here. What are we going to do? And you know, obviously the 20 are going to outvote the three. So you guys coming with us, and that means if it works... You get the credit. If it doesn't work, you can't sit there and go, well, I told you it wasn't going to work. We, we're all in it together. So we disagree and commit to it. And you know, that's been the philosophy for a long time. And and then living it from the top down, I think, you know, it's really, really important. So what were the non-negotiable expectations that you did set then? Um, the first one was team first and individual second. Um, I always felt that I wanted to care about my athletes but I didn't want that care and love and support to get in the way of making tough decisions. So if I made the team more important than the individual, then the team would demand that I'd make those tough decisions. And if we could educate our athletes and our management to understand that as well, then we'd all make the right decisions in the, in the moment that we needed to make them because it was more important for the team than it was for myself. Now, we didn't get that right all the time. You know, those guys... They're young men and they make mistakes, but you know, we got it right a lot of the time. So that was non-negotiable. Uh, having alignment was non-negotiable. So we couldn't do it if we didn't agree that we had to be aligned. And then the third one was that the players would drive that alignment. They would lead it both on and off the field. You know, I, I wanted them to drive the bus as opposed to me being the driver. I love what you said there about caring about players because I think often people assume elite sport is quite a brutal, harsh environment and yet to hear somebody as successful as yourself talk about caring and wanting to get along with players is important. Would you explain for those outside of that world then that maybe would be surprised at hearing that, why it is so important? Well, it's a tough job, as you've just said. You know, It's a really, really uh, mentally 
a pressured uh, environment and you know, human beings just by nature want to be loved, people to care about us, we want to be valued. And uh, when I started coaching, I, I always, um, I'm like I'm a reasonably simple person, so I'd always use the philosophy of my own career and things that happened to me, the good and the bad, and you know, the bad things I didn't want to happen to other people, like people not being brave enough to, to tell you the truth about selections, not being honest enough to say where you sit in the pecking order, not caring enough to be able to say, well, look, you know, you don't need to be here today. You go and sort out what's happening at home. So uh, I just naturally took that into, you know, and over years you refine it and you get better and you grow as you have more experiences. So whilst it's really important the team comes first, your team's made up of a whole lot of different people who have different things going on in their lives and need support. Some need a kick in the bum and some need a cuddle. But, you know, no one's ever been hurt by giving them a cuddle, have they? It's an interesting one, isn't it, this caring for people, because it's the right thing to do. Mm. But your job actually at the end of the day is to win games of rugby and win trophies. So can you give us an example of when you knew that caring for individuals actually translated to performances on the rugby pitch? Oh, there was no light bulb moment that said it. I just knew that that's how I wanted to coach. And um, when I did it, I knew I'd, I had an athlete who would give me more. So I guess that, that maybe that was the light bulb moment, I suppose. But the more you knew the athlete knew that you cared about him and you trusted him and, and you were able to be vulnerable enough with him to share things and normalise things, uh, the more they would give you. Can we talk about alignment as well? Because that's something that's come up in the conversation three or four times already. I think we all learn more when things aren't going right than when they're, when they're going well. Could you give us an example of a period in your coaching career when you've the alignment has not been right and it's you've had? To oh, there's two times it. probably uh, the alignment wasn't right with the process, and it was my fault because I became too outcome and focused. When was that? Uh, one was my second year as a Canterbury coach. We'd won the competition the first year, and you know, we're away flying, and I got so demanding because I wanted to win again that it got in the way of actually caring about the athlete and, you know, came across as a prick really and didn't care enough and value them enough and started missing things because it was all about winning. And probably the, the last time it happened was 2.17 and uh, Lions Tour, again because I really, really wanted to win that and it became more important than actually doing what was right. You know, but you recognise it and both times I went back to the groups, the two different groups and said, look, I've stuffed this up and this is what I've done and apologise and let's start again. So how do you avoid complacency then? Because that's a really interesting challenge when you describe that first year at Canterbury winning and then wanting to win again but without wanting to compromise your values. Yeah, I, I think it's about setting up a, a blueprint that you can go to when you're successful. So for us, we we had five things. We had, a, if you thought about them in columns, first column was about who we were, what's our identity, what's our legacy, and I'll come back to them. The second one was about how fast can we learn every day about what's going on, not just in our game, but in, you know, take information from all over the place. Third one, well, what are the inconvenient facts that we're prepared to admit to ourselves out loud as opposed to paper over the cracks. 
fourth one was how fast can we adapt and adjust in games when things aren't going the way we want them to. And the last one was, okay, what's the big audacious goal that we're going to try and achieve? Um, so we sat down and tried to identify what they were. And it was interesting because when we went to the identity, and it was a word that we'd used a lot, you know, our legacy, et cetera, et cetera, and, and I asked in a leaders meeting, I think there's 12 players and about four management, and we couldn't answer it as distinctly as we wanted to. So I said, right, oh, well, we have to find out what that is. So what we did was we uh, interviewed every living All Black, past and, and current, and asked them what were the values or the core things they saw that made them cherish the All Blacks. And we came up with a series of, of things and then we put players, attached players, into those different areas from the past. Uh, and that so okay, that's what we're representing. So that's what we have to deliver on every day. We went to the inconvenient facts and admitted to ourselves, right, oh, well, let's look at the teams we're playing. What are they as good as? You know, they'll be better at some things than us. They'll be the same as us at some things and then they'll be not as good in some things. So we've got to stay in front of them in this area, catch up here and try and get ahead of them here. So they're things you do every day and that allows you to not just concentrate on what you've just done. So it's bigger than that. And then the, and the, your big audacious goal, like ours was when I first got the job, we'd just won the World Cup in 2011. I had to go to this interview and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to say to them? You know, like, we're number one in the world, so I can't come and say, oh, we're going to be number one in the world. And they'll go, well, you already are. And I'll look like a dick. So, you know, I, I thought about it and talked to Tash, my wife, about it a lot. And then I come up with the idea of, okay, well, let's be the greatest sports team in the history of the game. And then once we had that established, what I wanted to do was be able to say what that looked like and would feel like. So I came up with these ideas and anyway, that's what I said to the board uh, when I went for the job. They gave me the job. But then I took it to the team and did what I was talking about before, give the management the chance to rip it apart and they all had a crack at it and but they liked it enough to keep it the way it was. Then we took it to the leaders and they liked it and uh, then we took it to the young guys and they all liked it. So it basically stayed the same. But what it did do was it, moved people's asses from being comfortable in the back of the chair to the front of it. And I, I don't even know if some people thought we could we could achieve it. And I don't know if we did or we didn't achieve it. It doesn't matter. What, what mattered was we had a whole group of people collectively owning that idea, trying to achieve it. And, you know, as I said to the group, it doesn't matter whether we achieve it or not, guys. It's what the public, it's the story we leave behind. They'll tell us if we've achieved it or not. And... and you know, like you're only going to achieve it to have to do it again. So it's never ending. And then we would set, you know, immediate goals for up-and-coming competitions and then mid-term goals. So as an example, like when we come here in 2015, the World Cup, one of the goals we wanted to do was become the second most supported team behind England for, for the English fans because if they got knocked out, who were England going to fans support? And we thought, well, why can't they support us? It'd be nice to come to Twickenham for a change and have them shouting for us. So everything we did off the field had that in mind. 
And again, the boys all bought into it really well. And you know, by the time we did get here, we did have a great fan base that was English based. Would you truly take us inside what life is like when you take on the All Blacks? Because there can be very few sports teams where the pressure is is similar. Yeah, well, that's uh, the pressure's the, the the word. It's the one constant. It's you, you know that. And we would talk about it a lot. Uh, during my time, and every time we'd come back together, we'd we'd talk about it. We'd go, right, oh, well, the one constant thing we're going to get here, guys, is pressure because we're going to be scrutinised. But don't be frightened by that. Actually embrace it and understand that whatever the external pressure is, we'll have an internal pressure that's even higher. So, therefore, the, that external pressure can't touch you. Right. We lost in 07 in uh, Cardiff and <laughs> people go, you know, some, they don't know what to say but they say some stupid stuff. Oh, yeah, really. Jeez, it really annoyed me when you lost that game. And I said, well, what do you think it did to me? You know, like I'm annoyed too, pal, you know. He said, oh, yeah, but I had to fly all the way over and I had to fly all the way home. And, and they sort of get it but they don't get it. It's because they love the game and they love the team and... You don't want – that's why you don't want it to change. Yeah. You want that people to be there really rooting for your team because it's a hard job when they're not. But you need to understand it's there. You need to have to admit to yourself it's there. And then you can put some plans around it. So what what you, pressure you feel might be different to the pressure I feel. What Dame feels could be different to both of what we feel. Identify what it is and then what are we? what's your plan? When you start feeling that, what are you going to do? Because when you, if you don't have a plan, and you're feeling it, you're gone. You're not going to pull it out your backside and say, "Oh, I'm going to do this now." Because you're not, you just can't. What sort of plans would you put in place then? For because obviously, some players would thrive under pressure, and we've all seen, you know, players. Yeah, but they thrive help. under pressure because they're prepared for it. Right. It's not. It's not the pressure that's making them thrive. It's because. the preparation that's making them thrive, and the plan for. Okay, when this gets hot. And, and, you know, it's tug of war sort of time in the, in the heat of the game, they're not worried about the scoreboard. Their plan is forget the scoreboard. Their plan is to stay right here where my feet are, stay in the now, what's the job I've got to do? Let's do that job as really good as I can and hope like hell the, the guy across me, he's worried about the scoreboard or he's worried about the mistake he's just made. And I think that's the difference. So having those mental skills, like... For a long time, the All Blacks didn't want to admit to ourselves that we were chokers at World Cups. And, and um, the reason we didn't is because the people at the top didn't have to own it because you got the sack. So the next guy coming in, well, not my fault. I didn't choke, so I'm not a choker. But in 07, we got the opportunity to do it again and, you know, we had to sit there and say, well, shit, what, what are we going to learn from this? What can we take out of this pain and put it into a wee parcel that's going to make us good? We won two World Cups because of the fact that they allowed us to have another go. And we took the learnings and, you know, Bob's your uncle, got the job done. So what were those learnings? All about pressure. We have to admit to ourselves that there is a lot of pressure. So how are we going to deal with the fact that we haven't been in a final before? What is that pressure doing to each of us individually that we haven't been there before? Things are going to go wrong. So what are that? What are we going to do if they do go wrong? I, I don't know if you remember eleven, but we lost more first fives than most teams have hot dinners. So we get into trouble because 
we don't expect some things to happen, so we feel threatened by it. And then we either get aggressive, fight, flight or freeze, which we've all, we all understand that term. We don't know how to deal with it. The simple thing is we go there every day. We, we Something will threaten us that we didn't expect. So the more things we can plan that might happen that we don't want to happen, the better we'll be off to react to it when it does happen. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. That can't take you away from what we want to happen. So this is how we want to play. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to achieve. Okay, so we've got that and we've, we've spent our week making sure that we've got clarity, we add the intensity and in once we've got that clarity and then we add the, the accuracy, right, okay, we're ready to rock and roll. But have we taken any time to think about, okay, well, what if we don't get that? Where are we going to go? both individually and collectively. So we would spend a lot of time, we used to call them what-ifs. So what if this happens? And most of the time it was pretty successful. See, what I find fascinating on that is because it makes perfect sense, but it challenges, again, this this notion outside of that world of thinking that everything's got to be positive, that you can't uh, allow room for the negatives in. Yeah, particularly this generation, I think, of uh, Z generation, they like the world to be positive. But they also like to have an opinion and they also like to voice it. So, okay, we'll give them that opportunity to do those things and have and take some ownership of it and, okay, what does positive look like? Okay, well, now what's going to happen when we don't get that voice? We can't go all howly-bally and say, well, we don't want that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> opposition ain't going to stop. Look, I look back at the 19 World Cup and... The hardest thing to do at World Cups, this is why they're so hard to win, is go back to back to back. You've got to have three great performances to win it. If you're in a draw, on the side of the draw where you've got real big opposition, like we played France in 15, we played South Africa, and we just got through that game. And then we had Australia. Well, probably the hardest game was South Africa. 19, we, we'd had a few problems with Ireland. They'd beaten us, I think, just before the World Cup, and... And we came out and smashed them. Played really well. Then it was about getting ourselves back in the right frame of mind. And I'm not you're not talking about a big drop. You're talking about one, two, three percent across the board of the team. And you're comfortable. You know, but you can't go into a test match, a World Cup semi-final comfortable. England had come off a, a disastrous 215 World Cup. They was hungry as heck, and they wanted us. But what happened to them the next week, they couldn't reproduce it because subconsciously they thought they'd done the job. It's not it's not a conscious thing, it's a subconscious thing. So you've got to work hard at those things as well. So I am conscious, as I'll say, that hindsight is the foresight of a gobshite. Yeah, so, <laughs> but, <laughs> that's well said. <laughs> yeah. When you look back on that period now, what do you think you maybe could have done differently to have spotted those signs? Oh, look, I should have known that because you're always vulnerable straight after that. The, and, and I did feel it in my bones, but at the same time we had a couple of injuries and one of them was a skipper. And I didn't want I, we didn't know if he was going to play or not and I didn't want the group going in, shit, we've lost the skipper, you know. we coaches been in it, demanding, demanding, now we've lost the skipper, like we, we can't win this. So you're trying to keep positive around that and I think probably got too positive. And, uh, you know, it's a slippery slope. Explain too positive. Well, you know, we were in the right space, boys. We are ready to go, you know, uh, knowing if Rideau wasn't there, then 
we'd lost a big chunk of who we are and they had a lot of belief in this cup, you know, he's an important part of the cog. So you're trying to, I don't want to use the word bullshit to make them feel good, but you're putting them in a place where, you know, well, Reedy's not here, but we're still okay. We're, we're ready to, you know, coach says we're ready to go, we're ready to go. But probably in hindsight, I might have been better of just, if he's not there, then he's not there. They'll, they'll cope with that and let's be really focused on being demanding and let's set that attitude where we're going to take this game rather than wait for it to happen. Like England came out and took the game. We waited and got smart, you know, smack, smack, smack. Oh, shit, now we better start now because this is, this is not what's meant to be happening. Yeah, it's very interesting getting the line right, isn't it, between building them up and... Mm. So even if as a coach you're having some slight concerns, is it ever a bad thing to say to the guys, look, this is the situation we're in. No, it's not a bad thing. But I think, like, when you look at that week, you know, it irks me. But when I look at the whole time, the 107 test matches as head coach, you know, we got most of those weeks right. So can I keep giving myself an uppercut? Yeah, I probably can, but, you know, get over it, Stephen. How harsh are you on yourself? Yeah, pretty harsh, yeah. Does it benefit you? Sometimes, but not. Now, now that I've finished coaching, it doesn't benefit me to keep still beating myself up over it. Like, I can't change it. I can't say, Eddie, can we replay that game? Hey, World Rugby, can we go back and have that week again so we can fix it? So you, you do have to get over it. You know, you got to put your big boy pants on and get on with it. And I've heard you, you speak about you have an alter ego. Sometimes it comes out, I can't remember the name you gave your alter ego when you get... Hyper competitive. Oh, Stanley. Stanley. Uh, yeah, I didn't give it. The, my wife and uh, a couple of friends gave me that <laughs> for Stanley. Yeah, Stanley comes out because he just he just becomes a bulldozer and there's no care, there's no love. He just charges. Well, I'm winning. We're playing cards, whatever it is. And what often tempts Stanley out? What what are the circumstances where that happens? Oh, ego and pride because you want to win. Your pride is the biggest stumbling block in the world because it doesn't allow you to, to admit your mistakes. It doesn't allow you to lose, you know, and it's a, just another word for ego, really. So your ego, we all have an ego um, and we just got to master it. And when your pride becomes a problem, you don't master it. So it gets in the way, I guess. And, yeah, so then Stanley comes out. He's just charging. <laughs> and does, did Stanley, does Stanley only come out Playing cards with the family or doing stuff, or did he also come out in your coaching? Career well, I as well? think I think Stanley came out in the second year with that Canterbury team that I was talking about in two fifteen. Um, Lions year, I think Stanley came out then, but we didn't have a name for for it back then. Stanley's reasonably new. He's probably coming out more since I haven't got that avenue to be competitive. We, we've got him under control now. <laughs> See, but Most of the time. <laughs> so, I mean, that's something I can identify with, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners can. Like, how have you learned to control that side of your character? Well, you see the reaction it has on other people. No one wants to play cards because Stanley's going to come out. Right. So I want to play cards, so I can't, you know, I've got to check Stanley. And, you know, the kids don't want to play. Well, I want to play with the kids, so you know, I've got to allow them to win occasionally. That's what happens. You see the reaction of what you're doing to other people, like, I'm reasonably sharp-tongued and and um, it'd be quite often people would say, oh, you know, he likes last word Steve. And I'll go, well, it's because I can think of the last word. 
However, I've come to understand that it's not a bad thing sometimes. Okay, well, you can have that and walk away from it because early doors I, I probably punished, hurt uh, people and not necessarily because I wanted to but because of what I, you know, just to win that, you know, that, that banter conversation. Our next partner, you won't be surprised to hear, is AG1. Look, we've been working with AG1 for months and months now, and it is something that for me is a non-negotiable in my day. Uh, One scoop first thing in the morning, and I've got 75 super high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients inside me. And I honestly believe it increases my immune system, improves my mood. I think I sleep better. I've got more energy. I've told you this so many times over the last year or so that I thought I would invite someone onto my podcast making their high performance debut to tell you what she thinks of AG1 because we take it together. It's my wife, Harriet. Hey, Harriet. Hello. So um, this is totally unnatural for her, but she promised me that she would give it a go because she loves it as well. So what do you think of AG1? I personally love it. I'm a mum of two small children and with you being away a lot. um, I honestly think AG1 has been so good for me. It's the first thing I have when I wake up in the morning. It's my go-to drink and it's just a great habit that I've formed. And although it's just a small change in my day, I've seen such a huge impact on my energy levels, um, my sleep. And I think in the past year, I can't think of any times when I've been really poorly in bed, I've just been um, so healthy since starting taking it. So I'd highly recommend it. There you go. If you don't listen to me, maybe listen to my wife. And if you're interested in getting involved in AG1, if you want to take ownership of your health today, then why not give it a go? AG1 are offering you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash high performance. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash high performance. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. 
the reason why that's interesting is because obviously, you know, you create these really fascinating and winning cultures with your rugby teams, but where you can't control is, is outside factors. So, mm. you know, you've spoken about your players coping with external perception. I wonder how you coped with external criticism. I'm thinking mainly from the media and, you know, a lot of people listening to this won't be in the position you're in, but they will feel judged and challenged by other people. What advice would you offer them? Yeah, look, I think none of us like to be judged in a negative way. Like, we're all pretty happy to pick up the the positive judgment. Yeah. But we certainly, it, it hurts when you get uh, the negative stuff. But you've got to come to understand that you're doing the best you can. If you can look in the mirror and say, look, I've done the best I can here. I've been honest. I've drawn my ass off. Is there anything else I could be doing? No. Uh, do these people know all the circumstances? Uh, no, most of them don't. Uh, are they hurting because they're not getting what they want, which is a team winning or whatever it may be? Yes, probably. So you just forgive them and move on. Like it's because it's better for your own mental health. People have perceptions because you win all the time. Well, you must be a great coach. They have the same perceptions of you're losing, oh, you must be a shit coach. And I often have a chuckle to myself because I coach a team that has the most losses in a row at test level and I have a team that has won the most. So I'm a shit coach and a, a great coach. You know, so I'm just, I just say to myself, we're well, just a coach, Steve. You know, so don't let it knock you. And like, you know where you want to go. And if you're taking your group with you and they want to come there too, then eventually you'll turn it around. Sport is so good because it doesn't let you win all the time. It just doesn't. No one can. So eventually you get a kick in the bum and, as you said before, we, we learn a lot more from that because we go deeper because it hurts, there's adversity. And you know, that was one of the things I always used to say to the boys, why do we have to lose to learn? Why can't we learn when we're winning? If we can do that, we can win more often because that's what we all want to do. Accepting that we're still going to get beaten occasionally because subconsciously we're going to get comfortable. And and once you get comfortable, then you'll make mistakes. Talking about high performance, like you compare yourself to a surgeon and he's going to do an operation on your knee, you, you don't want him getting comfortable. I want him doing the best job he can do on that knee. Yeah. And we would talk about that. And I would say, boys, right, we're going in to do an operation here. You know, we, are we going in at 95 here or are we going in totally committed? That's part of high performance, isn't it? If you get comfortable, you're going to get punished. So what would you say you did judge your coaching success by? Because like you say, you've had the most losses and the most wins. So if I can just give you an example of when a coach gave us a really fascinating answer to this was when we sat down with Rob Baxter at Exeter Chiefs and he said it took him 10 years into his coaching to realise the most important question was, would I be happy for my son to be coached by me? What would you say your criteria I've, was? I've always had the same criteria from the day I started to the day I've, I finished coaching. And it's the greatest pleasure I get is when I can get an athlete to achieve something that he or she wants to achieve and couldn't achieve until you came along and gave her a little help or him a little help. I get a real buzz out of that. I get a buzz out of you know, teams, individuals within teams being able to achieve w what they're trying to do. And and you can do that at any level of coaching. You know, like 
I'd, I was never ever worried about getting sacked because I knew, well, that's where I get my buzz from, so I'll just go back down to the local club and do it down there, you know. Brilliant. And how much freedom in your setup is there for you? Are, you know, are you um, are you a control freak? Do you want to know everything that's happening at all times? Uh, I would say that I'm an empowerer, but when I first started, I was probably a control freak. Yeah. Because I think we all are, because we think that's what we have to be. And we're not trusting enough in our own abilities to not want to know. But as time went on, I, I hopefully uh, others would say, uh, yeah, he, he would let us do our job. I'd be demanding, though. And we had one mantra in the group, in the management group, was if you're going to make a decision that's going to have or possibly could have an effect on the performance on Saturday, I want to know about it before we introduce it. If it's not going to do that, then don't have to tell me. So I, I saw myself as the helicopter over the group. We had a leadership system that went coaches, which Fozzie drove, wellbeing, which Gilbert and Oka drove, logistics and commercial, which Darren Shan drove, and then the leaders group driven by whoever the captain was. That, you know, the two captains were basically Richie or, or Rita. So they got on and did their bit, and yes, you had moments where, like, for example, Nick Gill's the strength and conditioning coach, and we're having trouble with Dan Carter in 215. He'd been pulling calf muscles for a couple of years, and, and I don't know, one day I just, because I've got an interest in horses and I understand... Uh, a long time ago, an old trainer said to me, he said, son, just because they're biomechanically, they're not, they don't have the right shaped legs, it doesn't stop them from running fast. It'll just stop them from being able to do that for a long time. Now, if you look at Dan, he biomechanically is a mess. And I thought, well, what if we took some weight off? And well, he wasn't fat. But so I asked him. I said, "Well, what weight were you when when you weren't pulling your calf muscles?" And he said, "Oh, I'm, you know, 93 maybe." I said, "What are you now? 95?" And like he's doing the the jockey ads at 95. So there's no, it's muscle. It's not yeah. fat. So I went to Gilly and we talked about it. And I said, "Why don't we take a couple of kilo off and see if you know?" Because we both agreed he biomechanically wasn't great. Would that help? Well, we did, and he never pulled another calf muscle. So you know that that's. Your role as the helicopter is not to, not to get in the way but to actually find solutions for some things and think about some problems that they probably don't have the time to think about. And so would you set quite strict rules then because that's – the great thing about that is you're standing off and you're empowering your people. So are rules important so they they know exactly the parameters they're working to or not? I hate rules. Do you? I hate rules. Expectations I like, but I don't like rules because they stop people from sometimes going where they should. And I often say rules are there to guide the brave and inhibit the foolish. Interesting. Uh, and, and when I, I'm working in Japan at the moment and it's a society that's got a lot of rules and, and it, it does inhibit them, you know, and we're making some progress and getting some change there, but... Oh, it's like pulling teeth out of a chicken. Like what in particular in Japan have you challenged? Well, you give me a glass, you're you're ranked higher than me in the in the pecking order, so I have to go down there with my glass. Right. You know, or you bow, I have to bow. Like they're they're beautiful cultural things that are all about respect and honour. 
and they're great traditions, but they're getting in the way of progress because they're inhibiting me from being able to challenge you so we can get your idea on that table and then we can smack it with a hammer and turn it into a great idea or say, well, actually, it's a shit idea, let's get rid of it. So, you know, well, I, I torment everybody because I'm meant to be at the top of the pecking order, so they're all trying to go low, so I'll go down here and make a joke of it and, yeah. and make it it's OK, um, understanding that it is, it is their culture and respecting it. But when we're in this environment, it's OK to be... Yeah. There'll okay. be people, though, listening to this where that, uh, that scares them a bit. They might be a business leader going, well, I, the rule is you come in at nine o'clock. The rule is you're, you don't work from home four days a week. The rule is, well, you'll sit together for lunch. You know, the, people often use rules to create culture. What would you say to those people? Well, you just repeat what you said. You use the word create culture. Yeah. I'd say they use rules to force the culture. And if they're forcing it, they don't have a culture. It's got to happen naturally. It's got to be something that we all own and we want to be responsible for. So you can't create something with a rule. You can only force something with a rule. And every rule will get broken. So then what? Now what are we going to do? We've broken the rule. Like if you break an expectation, uh, well, we can live with that. Well, you, there'll be a consequence, but it's not the same as your bro, well, he's broken the rule. You're going to have to drop him or you're going to shoot him or whatever you have to do. I don't know. So... Personally, I, I'm about expectation. I expect you to live the values and, and the things that we've said we want to live. As yeah. a, you know, I want you to make decisions that are based around those things. I don't want to make a rule that's going to make you have to do that. But what I love about that as well is that allows people to fall occasionally without being punished or ostracised or demonised for it. We all fall. I see players and like all human beings from time to time who want to be perfect. I've never – like, I go to our guys all the time and I go, tell me the best game you ever played. And he tells me, I said, right, hey, did you make any mistakes in that? Oh, yeah. I said, well, there you go. So stop trying to chase something that no one is ever going to do because you're always – human nature will say, oh, I could have done that better. I could have done this better. Just be satisfied that you're actually doing these things really, really well. And then what is it we can take out of that performance that we can keep and what is it that we can go away and grow and get better at? What about people then that are they're in your group and you're allowing the culture to mould them into the people you want rather than the rules, but they're just not getting it, they're just not right. How would you advise yeah. people to deal with that? Well, again, I think there's an old, old saying that we use, if you can't change the man, change the man. At some point, if they're not going to come with you, then that's not the place for you to be. And what did you employ to try and get people to come with you? Well, you try all the, the things we've been talking about, you know, give them opportunities to understand that this is what the expectations are of the team. You've sat through meetings, you've sat through one-on-ones. Well, I'll give you an example. Alfie Thomas, mm. probably the second-best athlete I've ever coached. Superb athlete, you know, behind Sonny Bill and he'd be next. When I first came to Wales, he wasn't a leader, but he was seen to be a leader by his peers because when, you know, I always find it ironic when people name captains or you're a leader and you know who the leaders are when the shit hits the fan and everyone goes, what are we doing? And it may not be looking at the captain. Well, they'd always look at Alfie. What are are we going to do, Alf? Anyway... 
Alf, he was in a part of his life that you know, wasn't quite clear for him and he was drinking and, you know, but he best physique you could ever see. So he was obviously training, but he, he'd come during the week and he wouldn't try, you know, he just didn't want to be better than anybody else or work harder than anybody. He didn't want to show, didn't want to bring his book and write things down. So we had a conversation, so Alf, I've got to let you go. But the doors open, if you change, then we'll look at bringing you back. So he went and, you know, I just lost my best athlete. Yeah. And I'm hurt and I'm thinking, God, I hope you change, man. And three weeks later, I got a ring from his coach and he said, oh, look, you've got to have another, this guy's changed animal. So I said, okay, thanks. And I'm again, back to the same horse trainer that taught me about the legs. I'd once said to him, oh, that horse looks really fit. You better put him back into training because we used to graze him on the farm. And his son, you give me a yell. And he's, he said, oh, why is that? And I said, oh, because he's bucking. So he's bucking today. It looks real fresh. He said, well, you give me a ring and when he's bucking every day and I'll bring him back into work. So <laughs> I put the phone down and thought, right, oh, if he's really serious, he's changed, you'll ring me back in, a, in another week's time to say, shit, I meant to, come down. Which he did do. Then I sent Scott Johnson down to see him and... Scotty had a chat to him and he came back and he said, oh, I think you need to talk to him. He seems to be on a different plane. And So we brought him in and sat there and we had a great conversation and I said, righto, mate, I'll judge you from this day forth on the things that we've just talked about that we need from you. And he you know, he went on to be one of the greats and, and um, captain the Lions, you know, and that was satisfying when you see him being successful because we tried to change him. We had to go right to the bottom of the well to do it, but we tried other things. But that's what I mean. If you can't change man, you have to change him. So if he hadn't changed, we wouldn't have got him back, but he did. And so you've got to be flexible enough in your thinking to be able to say, well, let's give him another go. Love if it. he's serious, bang, we've got a great athlete out of him. We always like to talk about a specific moment on... Um on high performance and just delve into it a little bit more deeply and often you know when it comes to the life that you've lived it's about winning the trophies and the titles and all of that but I'd really like to talk to you about the moment that you decided to to walk away because I think that that is a really interesting thing we spend our lives being told never quit never never give up you know sometimes the best thing you can do is is to step away from something yeah well look 20 years is you don't get 20 years for murder, do you? So it's a long time. Um, and it's a long time without your family. Um, Sorry. Don't apologise. Yeah, it's a long time without your family and, you know, you owe them something. Um, at some point the team needs you to allow them to try something different. Yeah. And you just know it's time. So pull the trigger and get out. I think, um, you know, the emotion around the family is is totally understandable. And I think sometimes it's only when you step back and you, you're you're in probably quite a reflective period of your life now where you look back on what happened. I, and I think we can't have a conversation about your success without actually paying the respects to the, you know, the amazing blended family you've got and mm. how the people around you had to allow you to do what you did. Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, you keep talking about them, I'll keep crying. So they miss out. Like, I don't know how many birthdays you miss. Um, Tasha did a wonderful job trying to keep everybody together. 
and then you come back and you're in and you're out, and you, you know. So it's easy for me, not so easy for everybody else. So you're just you know, so grateful um, because we were allowed... Oh, well, I think we're in a great place as a family. Everybody's achieving the things they want to achieve. Um, they're all striving, I guess, to to be better and uh, within their own setups. And they're still some of them are still finding their own way, and that that's fine. Like that's life. But uh, as as a group, you know, we love and care about each other, and you can't ask for any more than that. Thank you for that. Oh, I think you've got to acknowledge to yourself that it's okay to feel emotion. And, and were, you, were you sort of aware at the time the cost, or is it only something that you kind of realise when you act when you finally are there for those things? You well, do. you do, you do know. I think you know as you're going along, you can see it, and uh, you overcompensate, and by overcompensating, you're, you're not actually parenting as well as you possibly could be because you're you're feeling guilty about not being there for this or that or the next thing. And then, you, you know, like, you can't come home and try and run the house. That was, you know, because you've got someone else there that's been doing that and doing a great job of it, so don't come in and stuff that up. So you've got to come home and find your place, and sometimes, you know, that can be a bit awkward too. Difficult. I don't no. talk about that ourselves. Yeah. We've the travel. I think the other challenge you've got is, you know, I know that you've got a blended family and you always wanted all your kids to feel totally at home in whichever house they were in. I think... What I love about that is you talk about team before self in your rugby career. It feels to me like that's your version of team before self in a family setting as well, which is then puts challenges on other people, right? Yeah, it does, and you know their happiness is what's most important. Nice. Well, I'm so pleased to chat to you here in London, where you get to have a bit of a break with the family. Yeah, no, it's so, going to be great. Before they get even louder outside, let's do this. Um, we finish with a few quick fires. The first one is the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and ideally the people around you would buy into? Honesty, loyalty and hard-working. Very good. What's your greatest strength and your biggest weakness? My competitiveness is both of them. Your greatest strength is always your biggest weakness. How important is legacy to you? Uh, to me, I think, you know, what you leave behind is pretty important. What story you want your yeah, grandchildren to hear, massive. What advice would you give a teenage Steve just starting out? Uh, be mentally uh, more aware of how to use mental skills. Uh, be a little bit more patient. Um, don't be in a rush to uh, think with certain parts of your body as opposed to your bigger head. <laughs> and the, the final one is... Um, for people that have listened to this, been a really fascinating conversation. It's the final question, really, that you'd like to leave with the answer ringing in their ears. What would you now say is your one golden rule for for living a high performance life? Oh, be the best version that you can be. Don't compromise yourself. Um, don't compromise your integrity. Uh, just because you think it's going to be something beneficial to you, it's got to be a bigger cause than you. Yeah, so try and uh, be vulnerable enough to not put your hand up when you don't know um, and, and you don't have to tell the world everything you know sometimes it's better to listen to what other people know I love that I think um, we've caught you in a 
really nice reflective period in your life and thank you very much for spending a bit of time with us sharing the things you've done and the thoughts you have from it yeah thanks it's been wonderful thanks so, cheers top man Damien Jake one of those conversations where when he speaks you listen and he's quietly spoken he's very considered with what he says but so much impactful conversation in that in that chat oh, i think it was a utter privilege to be in the presence of somebody that you might dub them as old school but like he said at the start he's just a a, a a purveyor of common sense and helping make it common practice and that's what i've taken away from it i mean i love the fact that you know he shared with us in pretty deep detail you know how he would run the most famous rugby team on the planet and i love this idea of no rules because i think people get caught up with believing that i mean what about when i said to him um you need rules to create a culture and he's like no that's not creating a culture that's forcing a culture and what i think it's, it's a brilliant distinction and it's one that i hadn't even considered i'm like right set the rules that sets the culture and everyone follows and then he comes with a total curveball and you know and it does leave you thinking long and hard about rules doesn't it yeah that lovely line that he used about rules are there to guide the brave and inhibit the foolish the idea of catching people out rather than catching people in. We we know that people are going to make mistakes. Why? Because they're human. So rules are there then to punish people for that. Whereas the distinction of having high expectations, non-negotiable expectations, goes back to, you know, like when we've had this conversation in the past around the work of a guy called Robert Rosenthal that did a famous study called the Pygmalion Effect, where... He went into a classroom and picked kids out at random and said, these kids are going to be high performers. And over the course of the year, those kids outperformed the rest of the class. And then he revealed that actually he just picked them at random, but it was our expectations of those children that meant they lived up to them. And I think when you have high performance expectations, people will naturally want to strive to live up to them. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, the thing I love about doing these interviews when you do them face-to-face -face, is that you realise that the things they tell you, they actually live them. So he talks about family first and, you know, people need to understand that he had like six of his or five of his six kids were with him at Twickenham when we recorded the interview and, you know, they all went and had a load of drinks afterwards. And, you know, to see him getting emotional while talking about his family is one thing. If he's then travelling the world, never seen them, doesn't pick up the phone, isn't trying to create, you know, uh, this great family atmosphere, then you question it. But the fact that, he wells up talking about his family and you look to your right and you've got his five kids all standing in the room is a is a really good reminder that he lives what he says. Yeah, another example, he talks about having this inclusive culture. You know, I brought my son along today and he's been adopted as a member of the Hanson family. You know, they've incorporated him into it, they've made him welcome, they've been interested and engaging with him. And again, it's another sign that this is a family that really does practice what they preach. You know, his daughter Whitney was there she was the coach of the black ferns that won the world cup just at the end of last year that this stuff that they're passing on is not just rugby knowledge because that's obviously specific this is knowledge about how to engage a group of people and take them with you on a journey and for us it's been a privilege to have been able to experience a small part of that thanks mate thank you mate well there we go um, another incredible conversation. Uh, we were really moved actually talking to Steve and I'm sure you were as well listening to this. Um, I would love you to do one thing for me and it's to share this episode with somebody. Please 
spread the word on high performance. We basically rely on people like you to talk about this show and to get others to come and listen to it. So if you can, please help us to grow this podcast by sharing it among your community, whether it's mentioning it to someone, WhatsApping it to someone, sticking it on your socials, I don't mind, but please continue to spread the learnings and the lessons that we're all taking from these conversations. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic and we'll see you very soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.